In the uh, Christian tradition in which I grew up, we did not celebrate All Saints Day. In fact, if you were to ask me about it, I'd probably tell you that it sounded really Catholic uh, to me and probably not something Protestants should have anything to do with um, until I got to Redeemer. And I so appreciate now this Sunday out of every year that we look back and with tears in our eyes, remember the men and women and children of our church who have died in the last year. It gives us an opportunity not just to mourn their deaths, but also to fix our hope again on the hope of the resurrection, on the work of Jesus Christ for us. And I think that we need these periodic reminders of how to deal with death because even as Christians, I don't think we deal with death very well. Even among Christians, death can make us feel uncomfortable and awkward. Have you ever wondered what to say to someone who has a loved one who recently died? Beyond saying, I'm so sorry, do you stumble for words and, and, and wonder how to keep a conversation going? Maybe you're wrestling with how to handle your own sadness, how to handle your own grief when you think about either one of the people on the list in our bulletin as loved ones here at Redeemer, or maybe even in your own life, in your own family, in your own circle of acquaintances that have died, and you just feel this overwhelming sadness, and you're not sure how to handle it or what to deal with it. You know, Paul tells us not to mourn as those who have no hope, but what happens when your hope seems fragile? What happens when it seems like you've reached the end of hope and you're not sure what's on the other side? Unfortunately, many of us, when we are in this situation, by default, we adopt the pop theology of our culture. Uh, we'll tell one another that, oh, isn't it so sweet? Grandma's with grandpa now. And they've got to have such a joyous reunion together. Or we'll think of a friend who maybe was racked with pain or was disabled, and we'll say, oh, she's, she's dancing with Jesus now. Or we'll try to assure someone in our life, honey, don't worry, your daddy is looking down on you from heaven, and he's so proud of you. Well, none of those things are true. None of those things are biblical. One of the only pictures we have of the dead in the Bible comes from Revelation chapter 6. And there in Revelation chapter 6, the souls of those who have died are gathered together in a sort of kind of protective huddle underneath the heavenly altar of God. But they're not paying attention to one another and they're not paying attention to what happens on earth. They're calling out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? How long until our deaths are avenged and your justice flows around the world? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that a day is coming when the dead will be raised and their bodies will be joined to their souls. And that's the day of reunion. That's the day of dancing. That's the day of rejoicing. That's the day when we will sit down together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, we have to, and when we think about death and dying, we have to say what the Bible says. And one of the things that the Bible helps us understand 
is as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is why Paul will say in Philippians chapter 1 that his desire, even as he's ministering to the churches that God has called him to, his desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Folks, I think this promise of being in the presence of the Lord, that's the most important thing that we can hold on to when we think about our own loved ones who have died. They are in the presence of the Lord. But I don't think that that promise is something that's simply held out for us on the day of our death. Instead, what I want you to think about, what I want you to take home and meditate on today is that promise of being with the Lord. It's not just something that happens at the end of our life. It's what animates and gives hope and confidence to every day of our life. God promises that He will be with us. That's the promise He makes to Moses here as He begins to send him back to Egypt. Many of you are familiar with Moses' story. You know that by this point in his life, he's 80 years old. The first 40 years of his life he spent as a prince in Egypt, a member of Pharaoh's household, until one day he saw an Egyptian overseer beating a Hebrew slave, and he struck and killed the Egyptian and and ran for his life, fleeing into this wilderness here that we read about in Exodus chapter 3, ultimately getting married there and having children and serving underneath his father-in-law Jethro as a shepherd for another 40 years. 40 years as a prince, 40 years as a shepherd, and now God is calling him to go back to Egypt because he has heard the cry of his people, and he wants Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. Maybe some of us would think that Moses is like, yes, finally, you came and got me. I have been picking up after these sheep for too long. It's time for me to get back to Egypt. It's time for me to be in control, to take all of that training, that royal experience that I had and put it to good use. But of course, that's not what Moses says. In verse 11, he says, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. God doesn't meet Moses' objection with a reminder of his royal training. He doesn't tell him that, hey, you know, all this 40 years of corralling sheep, that's actually going to come in really useful for you. Instead, he responds with a promise. Look at verse 12. I will be with you. I will be with you. Folks, I have to think that that promise is one of the most comforting phrases of Scripture. I will be with you. And that promise is something that Moses holds on to for the rest of his life. Later in the book of Exodus, Exodus 33 
You know, the, the, the cycle of the story of Exodus is that God works on behalf of his people and all the people rejoice, yay! And then the people start falling into sin and they really start frustrating God until God's ready to wipe them all out and start over again. We're in one of those cycles in Exodus 33 and God is angry with the people of Israel, but instead of swearing that he's just gonna wipe them all out and start over with Moses, he tells Moses, I'm done. You can take them into the promised land, but I ain't going with you anymore. And Moses doesn't say, well, I can understand why we have finally, completely, like totally irritated you, and so, you know, thank you for getting us this far. And he says, no. No, we're, we're not going anywhere. We are staying in the desert if you don't go with us. You have to go with us. Because he knows that the only way he will know that he has found favor in God's sight is if God is with him. That's the promise that he's banking on. You see, God's presence was a visible sign of God's favor. How do you know God is pleased with you? He's with you. If he is not with you, something is terribly wrong. Moses doesn't just need God's authority to lead God's people. He doesn't just need God's power to lead God's people. He needs God's presence. That's what assures Moses that God is pleased with him and pleased with the people of Israel. There's going to be lots of times in the next 40 years over Moses' life where it's going to seem like God is not pleased with him or God is not pleased with the people of Israel. But one of the fascinating things about this story is no matter what Israel does, God is still faithful to this promise. I will be with you. God's gracious presence will stay with Moses until the very end. Some of you know this story, but remember again where we see God's presence in Moses' life. Here he shows up in this bush that's on fire but isn't consumed by the fire. Later on, God will speak to Moses in an audible voice and he will assure Moses of victory and triumph as he goes before Pharaoh. It, the, the very famous pillars of fire and cloud that lead Israel out of Egypt across into the wilderness. There's this rock that shows up every day wherever Israel camps. It's like it doesn't matter how far they've gone. They, they set up camp and they look around and go, oh look, it's that rock again. And that rock, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. That rock was God's provision of water, miraculously provided for the people of Israel every day, no matter what happened in that day, no matter what was going on, God was there for them. Even Moses and the elders go up when they finally get to Mount Sinai and they go up and they eat and they drink with God. Ultimately, God is with Moses until the very last day of Moses' life. Because it was, it was the Lord himself who buries Moses on the top of Mount Nebo when Moses dies. I will be with you. 
Friends, let me ask you, is it too much to hope that this promise, I will be with you, is it too much to hope that that promise is God's word to you today? Do you believe that God is with you? I think we have to be honest when we answer that question, and I think for many of us, we have to say, well, can God be with me tomorrow? I've got some things that I want to do today that I don't think God is going to be all all that excited about. In fact, can we like split my life up so that three days out of seven, God can be with me and the other four days I can kind of rule my own life? I can do the things that I want to do. I can set the terms of my existence. I think many, many more of us, unfortunately, hear this promise, God is with us, and we sigh. We wish that were true. We don't feel like it is. And we lament that. We long for God to be with us, but we have resigned ourselves to maybe really never understanding what that means, to never feeling His presence with us. We wish it was different, but we don't know what to do with that promise. Friends, we don't have to wait until we die to know the presence of God. Instead, this promise of Exodus 3 is a promise that God makes to you, too. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have all the same experiences that Moses had, okay? If you see a burning bush on your way home today, pull over and call 911. Like, if you hear a voice telling you to take off your shoes, it's probably because your mom mopped the kitchen floor. But even if you don't see any pillars of cloud or fire in your life, God's promise is true. I want to show you this morning and really just even finish this morning with three ways that God's promise, I will be with you, this promise to Moses in Exodus 3, three ways that that promise is still true for you. First and most importantly, this promise, I will be with you, I mean, there is no better description of Jesus Christ than that. I will be with you. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And even though he now rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, don't forget that he told his disciples that he would remain with them through the power of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 17 that the Spirit would be with them and the Spirit would be in them. He was sending the Spirit to communicate His own presence to the disciples. Now folks, that is an objective promise that belongs to all the disciples of Jesus. So if you are a Christian this morning, God is with you. You can't get rid of Him. He is with you, and the Holy Spirit is in you. Eric, seriously, you drive me nuts sometimes. Like, then why don't I feel that? Why doesn't that seem to make any difference in my life at all? 
Why doesn't this reality that you keep telling me is real, why doesn't it seem real? Several different reasons that we could look at. I mean, one is sin. Sin is going to disrupt that feeling of God's presence with you. And sadly, that's something that you're going to struggle with, that I'm going to struggle with until the day that we die. But friends, I think sometimes we are so distracted by what's going on around us, we fail to sense His presence in our lives. We could be distracted and not even see the burning bush, right? We can fill our calendars with so much activity that there is no time for us to even give thought to the ways that God is with us. But I think sometimes it's a a faulty expectation. We think, okay, God is with us. Where's the burning bush? Where is the voice from God? Where is the miraculous thing that I can't avoid that is going to bowl me over? And meanwhile, there's a rock that gives us water. God provides for us. God is with us in very practical and tangible ways. And we're like, I don't need the water. I need a voice. I need something that's powerful, that that pulls me forward. And God says, actually, what you need is sustenance. What you need is provision. Friends, Jesus never promises his disciples that they will feel God's presence. Instead, he assures them that the Holy Spirit will be with them. And that's the assurance that belongs to you today, too. Something really fascinating. Later today, later this week, if you get a chance, go read Isaiah 63. Because in Isaiah 63, we read that when God said he would be with Moses, that it was the Holy Spirit who was with Moses. The Holy Spirit was in the midst of the people of Israel. Do you see the continuity of God's presence, the continuity of God's promise? I'm going to give you myself, and he gives Moses the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you're always going to have me with you. And he gives his disciples the Holy Spirit. Friends, that means that when you are feeling alone and when you are feeling abandoned or orphaned, you can call out to the Holy Spirit. Ask him to guide you. Ask him to lead you. Especially on those days when you don't feel it. Especially on those days when the the, the temptations of sin seem so much more real than this promise of the presence of God. Jesus calls him the helper. And he was with Moses, and he is with you. We know that God is with us because Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. That's the first thing. The second is we know that God is with us because He is with us here at this table every Sunday as we come to feast on the bread and wine of communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, that same passage where Paul says that that rock that followed Israel through the wilderness was Christ, a sacramental sign. He says, in this table, as you eat this bread, as you drink this wine, you are having koinonia, that great Greek word that all of us need to know. 
koinonia with Jesus. Well, what is koinonia? Koinonia is fellowship. Koinonia is participation. In fact, the ancient Greek writers used that word to describe marriage. What do we know about marriage from Genesis? That marriage is a one flesh union. That's the kind of union that we enjoy when we come and eat and drink with Jesus. Now, one of the things that I am super grateful for is that reality doesn't depend on how much I feel it. That reality doesn't depend on how much I understand about it. That reality doesn't depend on how well my week has been and how intent I am on coming to the table. Even John Calvin, who's probably the greatest theologian in our tradition, he said this union between Christ and His people, it's incomprehensible by your natural faculties. Listen to what he says. If anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, I am not ashamed to confess that this is a secret too lofty for me. Too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. Folks, if Calvin can't explain it, you're not going to explain it either, okay? He goes on, he says, at this supper, we offer our vileness and our unworthiness so that he may give us his mercy. We come despairing of ourselves so that he can comfort us. We abase ourselves and he lifts us up. We accuse ourselves and he justifies us. Friends, that is far more powerful than anything Moses ever experienced. That's real change in you. That moves you from guilty to not guilty, from outside the promises to inside the promises, from unloved to loved. God is with us when we come and eat and drink at this table. The third way that God is with us is He is with us through the ministry that we exercise toward one another. Martin Luther famously said that our vocations, our callings, our jobs, they are masks behind which God hides. And by that, he meant that our service to one another is actually God's service through us to other people. And that happens in your family, that happens in your workplace, that happens with your neighbors, but nowhere more certainly does that happen but in the body of Christ. That language that the Bible uses, the body of Christ, that is intentional imagery. Because the writers want us to understand that even in the small things that we do, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. That people feel a tangible touch of Jesus when we serve them. Folks, that's one reason why we stress membership 
and participation in a local church. It's not just because we're Presbyterians, we want to dot every I, cross every T, we got a committee for everything and 16 forms you got to fill out. If you've been through our membership process, some of you say, well, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Folks, we really believe that when we link arms in membership together, when we look at one another and say, I belong to you and you belong to me, we're saying we're not going to make it unless we are together in this. God is present with us, ministering to us through one another. The great Scottish preacher, Alistair Begg, said that there has never been a time in Christianity's history when more how-to books have been written for believers. And then he follows up with the million-dollar question. So how are we doing? And to ask that question is to answer it, right? Church is weak. The church is ineffective. Does the church really have a prophetic voice in our society? Consumed by infighting. We're all focused on what we get out of it rather than what we give to others. Maybe our problem is we're looking for a how-to manual when God has given us Emmanuel. When God has given us his presence. God has given us himself. I will be with you. One author says that with is God's favorite preposition. I will be with you. I'm not going to take you out. I'm not going to relieve you of the suffering of this world. I'm not going to prevent hard things from happening to you. But I will be with you. It's a promise that gives us life and hope, even in the face of death and sorrow. Friends, the same God who holds our loved ones safe until the resurrection is the God who is with us, binding all of us together in loving communion with him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we trust our feelings far more than we trust your promises. So give us faith to believe your promise even when it's hard to know your presence. Give us eyes to see the rocks that follow us through our lives, providing for us. And even the people who minister Christ's touch to us. And Father, bring us again and again to this table where you promise to nourish us with the heavenly life that is Christ. Well, Father, open our eyes so that we might see how you are with us. And Father, may that sustain us, not just on our final day, but every day. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.